I would like to thank you all on behalf of the podcast and myself, and I hope we pass the audition. I don't know what you're referencing. He says it at the end of the concert. Oh, did he? Maybe that's how Beatles pilled I am that I know that. Just, I knew that before I watched this. But it really is like, what a baller thing to end, to effectively end your career. You know, yeah. Like, watching that concert, not to like dive immediately into today's topic, but like, which lately I feel like we've been doing, just like, right fresh out of the gate, we're just like, you know what, I have a thought. And <laughs> well, because you know what it is, you know what it is, Sydney. It's because we've been really, really good at like biting our tongue. Because before, yeah. like with earlier episodes, I feel like we would talk too much about the topic before, like the week before we In recorded it, and then we'd be a little yeah. fizzled out. Right. Whereas now we're really good at like biting our tongue. And, yeah. Like, for the avoiding week. like giving. A, yeah, we want to keep our cards like close to the chest, so when we drop them on each other, we're surprised. Like I've been so careful, like talking about wish, because I'm like. I don't want anything I say, like, I want all of my opinions to be fresh for you. I don't want my opinions influencing you. I right. don't want, like, I don't want us to have, like, decided narratives for the podcast before we start recording. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like that just creates much better, like, it just makes more fun episodes when, it does. Like, both of us are like, can we finally fucking talk you know about what? this I have thing something to that say. we've been yeah. <laughs> for a week? Yeah, I got shit to say, man. <laughs> right. But, I'm sorry, what, like, what were you saying before we did that? <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to say, like, even, like, in this final concert, they, they're giving such, like, um, garage band energy. There's such a casualty to them. Um, it, like, I was, like, watching them, I was like, this reminds me of Weezer, where, like, they just seem like guys. <laughs> they just seem like guys just jamming. And that's that's it. <laughs> right. And it is, like, it's simultaneously so, like, it is weird how, like, nonchalant it is in the grand scheme of things. Especially because, right. like, the music is building up as, like, the cops are trying to break down the door. They're like, we already right. got three nose complaints. My favorite is they, like, named the cops. They made the point. They did. They're like, here's this who motherfucker. all of them were. Yeah. And I'm like, you're doxing cops 50 years after the right. fact. Yeah. Because they were big enough assholes to fuck with the Beatles. That they ru- they mentioned everybody. Move. They mentioned, like, people were like, I wasn't, I didn't want to know who that was. Like, the damn receptionist that, that gets shown for, like, two seconds. Right. I'm like, I don't I'm know. Like, They've oh, just been down there. Right? Like, it really is like a bunch of mad scientists down there, like, making a bomb or something. It's like, I don't know. This is just, I own this building. But I didn't know what they But in hindsight, it's like... Yeah, it's like if, if this is like history happening, it is it is fascinating to see all of the witnesses to that and to like give them right. an identity. Every every part of this project is quote unquote baller shit. Like yeah. everyone from like in the moment when the Beatles are like, you know what, let's just do it on the roof to like them continuing to play as the cops have gotten up there mm-hmm. to Peter Jackson doxing a bunch of cops and also like underlining how like punk rock this was Mm -hmm. truly everyone just said fuck it we ball for 60 years of this sort of like mythical final concert of the beatles Mm -hmm. um and i like again i'm such annoyed about the beatles it really is full circle to like you know they started like their most famous performances like to start their career before they were officially the beatles were like in the cavern club this dank little like abandoned thing where everyone's on top of each other. It's, like, moist Basement. from, like, the amount yeah. of body compression yeah. to being out in the sky, but still having that sort of 
punk rock rebellious energy. But that gets into a whole thing about like how funny it is like rock and roll was considered rebellious at one point. Right. Where it's like now the big Beatles so are fitting like, the most that the police are, show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like now the Beatles are the most boomer thing you could possibly are, imagine. Yeah. But when you're watching it and you're seeing how like the cops are reacting and how people are reacting, you're like, oh yeah, it is kind of, re- this is rebellious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, we're five minutes in. Welcome to the Disney desk, desk, everyone. Carter here. And I'm Sydney. And welcome to the holidays. Woo! Welcome to December. I can't believe we are on the home stretch for 2023. It's almost over. Oh, yeah, you're telling me. We're literally recording this. It is the 30th, right? We are literally recording this the day before December starts. I, I try to... I, I try really hard not to celebrate any kind of holly jolliness, at least until December. I'd make my Christmas list on, like, Thanksgiving, but, like, mm-hmm. in general, holly jolliness gets quarantined to December. Right. But um, That's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, for us, this is one of our, like, most fun periods because, like, when you think... It's really easy to think Disney when you think the holidays. Like, obviously, oh, we yes. love October because we love Halloween and there's just an endless cavalcade of like spooky or sort of festive content we can do but like Mm -hmm. christmas is kind of like a seminal disney period like i would agree despite not having that many again like we talked about this last year like one of the reasons why they were so like gung-ho about pushing christmas carols like they wanted a definitive christmas movie they Mm, wanted their thing right which they didn't really have outside of, like, well, if you consider the their version. Yeah, the Muppets Christmas, Scrooge McDuck Christmas. Like, they didn't really have, Mickey's like, a... Mickey's Once Upon a... Yeah. Exactly. Stuff like that. Um, and for this first episode of the month, we kind of are inadvertently... It is maybe the most holiday-adjacent without being adjacent thing ever. Because when I sort think of, of Christmas, I inadvertently think of Disney. But when I also think of Christmas... I inadvertently think of the Beatles. Why? Well, one is because I think it's just because they're famous for doing Christmas albums. Like, it was a whole thing. For years, they would, like, you would join a fan club, and yearly, they would send out a Christmas album. It would just be a vinyl record where it's them playing, like, standards or Christmas tunes or playing songs. Mm -hmm. And it would just be them, like, talking and chatting and be like, well, I hope you had a lovely year. Mm -hmm. You know? I don't know which one that was supposed to be. We should have gotten Kevin on to just pretend that to be was Ringo for the whole Joel, episode. Which is my, which is if you could put Paul and John together. Yeah, composite McCartney. <laughs> yeah. Like the Lennon character who's like Batman and Super together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think it's because of the Christmas album thing. Again, it's like a period of sentimentality and nostalgia. And I do think the Beatles kind of embody that. And yeah, for me, I would agree with. I, I, and maybe for me, it's, like, one of my favorite Christmas memories, and I know we're kind of, like, cheating in terms of, like, things we talk about when we get closer to the holidays, is one mm-hmm. of the best Christmas gifts I ever got was a master. Back in 2009, they did a remaster of every single Beatles album. Like, the idea was, like, finally a definitive collection of CDs of all the Beatles albums with behind-the-scenes stuff. They did a version that was mono and stereo. I did the stereo one because um, the mono one was somewhat organized by American releases, whereas... The stereo was British releases, and I just, for some reason, my brain just defaults to that when describing their albums. Like, okay. the earlier releases are different for America than the U.S. They have different names. They have right. different context. By the time you get to, like, Sgt. Pepper, I think, is, like, they line up perfectly, but I don't know. That's just me weird being categorizing. And what we're actually talking about today, ladies and right. gentlemen, as oh I God. realize we are already so off the rails, get back. Oh, 
before yeah. the Beatles get back. Right. And I mean, like, before we, we dive in, we should kind of talk about um, why we made the decision to act, like, how that, that came to be, uh, that we are talking about this today. Um, like, like how we decided to throw this into this month. <laughs> right. And you, I feel like you kind of it was me. really early. I did because, well, okay, so this starts a couple weeks ago. First of all, as of the date of this recording, yet last night I got my Spotify wrapped, which, like, hmm. for those of you, and I think the other music platforms have their version of, like, this is what you listened to all year. Um, the Beatles made it into my top five artists for 2023. Um, nice. Which, which makes a lot of sense, which, like, by the, my... They, they were number three behind Paramore, who put out an album this year that I was obsessed with exclusively. Mm. But I'm a massive Paramore fan. And I, um, I Pentatonix. I did not know an album came out. Oh, yes. And it's beautiful. And that's all I listened to all summer um, and, and I spring. I knew Pentatonix. I didn't know Paramore. I love Pentatonix. And I, I, I recently returned to them this year. Um, but then in the last few months, and honestly, one of these things kind of feeds into another... Um, we, we haven't talked a lot about music here. Um, and so I guess this is Which is like, funny, because it's Disney. Right. And, like, oh, we, we did have a Disney music episode, but we haven't talked about, like, our personal, like, relationship to music and, like, what we, you mm-hmm. know. But, um, anyway, long story short. So a couple weeks ago um, was the release of their single, um, Now and Then, which I immediately was, like, on top of. Recently, I have been on a Beatles kick from, from kind of like a music theory perspective. And we'll talk a a, a bit later about why, why the, why the Beatles get to be the Beatles. Why, why people like scream it in your face that they're important. Um, yes, (laughs) but so I have been listening to their, to their music, like one album at a time on repeat. Um, just as like a focused like study on on um, each period in music history, because essentially that's what it boils down to. The Beatles are like entry level music history. If you want to, um, they're sort of the cleanest, most concise packaging of like pop music history, and by extension, mm-hmm. rock and roll. But um, anyway, now and then comes out, and we were talking about now and then. Um, the single and the the technology and and ultimately those two things are linked um, the technology for how they were able to create the single now and then with vocals from John Lennon and how that ties into the technology that they used to produce uh, this documentary get back which what did we say it came out in 2021 mm-hmm. yeah so yes so then, you want to know something funny I still haven't listened to Now and Then. I wanted to finish this before I did it. What? I thought you did. I thought we talked about this. Or did I Did I just... I talked about being excited for it. But then when you pitched this, I was like, I really want to listen to this, doc- watch this documentary to kind of get this, like, I feel like okay. that gets you in the mood to know it's like, and there's one more song. Well, there's a documentary for Now and Then. Have you yes, seen that? which I plan to, I plan to watch that immediately after okay. we record this episode as like a well, coda. Now that I know that, like, it will absolutely make you cry, first of all. Oh, I'm this made um, me cry. Right. This is going to make you boo-hoo-hoo all the way home. Um, now and then... I'm in my house! Exactly. Um, I, and we'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about now and then later. But basically, that led me to, like, 
we were talking about Get Back, and then I was like, we should just watch that. That's Disney Plus, and right. <laughs> that's that's the only reason I linked it together. I was like, well, that's not Disney Plus. That means it's in our jurisdiction. Yes, that it falls under our law, and it really was like a. It was one of those moments where I'm like, that's Sydney. She does it again. Dun, 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 Brilliant. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Bam. And then I waited a little too long to watch it, forgot it was nine hours, Me too. and kind of just binged oh, nine hours of long. content in the span of three days, um, almost ki- died. Right. I'm yeah. not a binge guy. I think they that's why right. I like Disney Plus more than the others, because I'm like, I like things to come out one at a time. Um, well, you know what? And like, we're about to actually dive into other things. I, I swear, like, I feel like this episode is like, before we begin, one more thing. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, um, we just turned into Columbo. Right. Um, Our joint brain power I together have is Columbo. A big bone to pick with Disney Plus because it's like I know on many like this is not the first time I'm I'm like calling out Disney Plus, mm-hmm. but like I hate it actually. Like this was watching this documentary was the worst viewing experience I've ever had with this app. Okay, I watched Jesus. it from my iPad. On the app itself, like, and every single time it was losing my, my spot. Like, it, it was keeping no record of me watching it. It was, it was put, it was loading it into the continue watching. And then it would have the little blue bar at the bottom. Like, this is how much, and then I would click on it and it would start the episode from the beginning. And I would have to manually scroll through and like kind of find. Oh, that's really yeah, and, and it's like, I have so many issues with Disney+. Plus. Like, I, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times in the show, I will continue to scream it. It has the worst user interface, and, and I just expect more from Disney. Like, mm. I just expect the technology to be better, and I, and I hate it. Like, I hate using this fucking app. It really is an embodiment of, like, the fallacy of the streaming era. Like, truly, that the streaming era was this, like, suicide march that all the companies kind of just agreed to go on. <laughs> That's still hurting the industry today, this day. Mm-hmm. And, well, I have some negative things to say about Disney, but I was probably going to save them for our Wish episode, uh, some recent comments Bob Iger made. But, like, you know, instead of just admitting, yeah, we were dumb and followed a fake uh, business model that mm-hmm. was not quite Netflix lying to its shareholders, but basically it was them committing fraud. Right. Um, Instead, it's just easier to throw Nina DaCosta under the bus and throw uh, all the people who work here under the bus. But I mm-hmm. digress. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, an, it's a perfect embodiment of, like, streaming was a mistake. That Disney should theoretically have infinite resources to make the best streaming service possible, and they just right. don't. Because what's, what's the point? Right. Exactly. We have so much to talk. <sighs> like I love we're already fifteen minutes. Believe in. it or I not, actually we have, a have lot more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have. I have a lot I want to say about this <laughs> mm-hmm. and just sort of the Beatles in general. But first, it is time for another Internet Minute. Hit it. Entertainment Weekly: Disneyland chaos as guest strips naked runs through. It's a small world ride. You knew we had to talk about this. Okay. America. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the other day, Carter just texted me out of the blue, and he's like, so we're going to talk about the streaker, right? And I was like, sis, what are you talking about? Because I'm not on social media anymore, which, like, certainly makes the segment Internet Minute slightly challenging. But um, I had no idea about this. There yes. are people in the world who have not... Um, heard the the streaker the the disney streaker believe it or not 
As seen in several videos and photos that circulated Sunday online and confirmed by, uh, to Entertainment Weekly by a 27-year-old attendee who was, who was on the ride at the time of the incident, an unidentified Disneyland guest climbed through several of the attraction's interior show scenes, ran through the wild ride's water canals, and reportedly was reportedly apprehended by authorities after traversing the exterior of the ride while completely naked. Um, yes, there have been multiple posts on social media. Um, of, you can clearly see a guy. And most of the photos still have, and videos still have him with pants on. Um, but there is a final shot that clearly he's uh, just, uh, just completely out and about. Nice. Um, so, <laughs> yes. So some, it's a small walk. Small World is probably one of the more famous rides in Disneydom. It's kind of like mm-hmm. seminal with the Disney parks. Right. And so far, we haven't really gotten a lot of discussion about why this guy did this. Like, yeah. was he inebriated? Was this a deliberate planned thing? Right. Was, was this a he... mental health episode? Like, Yes. I mean, the person who's interviewed for this... Um, Is it a bet? <laughs> for this segment said, he just looked out of it. Um, he just didn't look like he knew where he was. He looked worried. My friends had seen him and it looked like he was going to jump on us. Um, the cast member got him to sit down for a few minutes, but then he continued walking in the opposite direction behind us and then ran off toward the entrance of the ride. Um, and so there's a lot of discourse about this in relation to Universal. Famously, Universal has, like, a lot of strict rules and has, like, a lot of strengths. Like, a lot of people in, who are, like, park hopper, like, Florida park people complain about, like, Universal is very restrictive. Like, you don't mm. have a lot of mobility on the rides. It kind of keeps you in place. And it's like, yeah, because this – otherwise, this happens. Right. There is, like – there is a, like, sort of complaint about Disney rides that perhaps a part of the reasons why is because a lot of them are older and maybe haven't been retrofitted, but, like – there's a little too much mobi- like freedom to get out of the car, Especially which can cause problems. In a small world, you could very easily just stand out. up right. out of there's your There's very little stop. Yeah. It, it, basically, the idea that you are in a contained system is an illusion based on mutual right. trust. And yeah. we are at a point in time where, you know, you can blame it on a number of things. People going crazy from the pandemic, people wanting to be social media famous, maybe people just not having a great day. Uh, you can break that illusion very, very easily, yeah. and that creates problems. Right. Um, so, fortunately, he was apprehended, and the bride was able to, you know, people were able to continue going on the ride that day. Um, and interesting, Jenny Nicholson, a famous, more famous internet person than us, and sort of a Disney aficionado, asked the question, if you could be nude on one Disney ride, what would it be? Um and hmm. that actually raised an interest. I mean, I guess I'm not as familiar with the park rides. I think it'd be funny to be on the Tron ride because it's new, but I feel like I could actually get injured on that. I don't know why I'm uh, thinking about, like, the Galaxy's Edge park. Um, but, like, wouldn't everybody just Tom be Solo nude? Solo definitely flew that thing bare-ass naked once, wouldn't, right? Wouldn't everybody just be naked under, like, their robe if everyone was just wearing, like, a Jedi robe? <laughs> I mean, literally, there was a whole thing with the first Star Wars where Carrie Fisher was told she couldn't wear a bra because in space, gravity's lower, and it would, like, crush your would chest. support you? Oh. Oh, okay. I thought I thought they were trying to say, like, there's no right. gravity, so your well, boobs would too. hold themselves up. Yeah. And then she whipped around and called them out for that when she had to wear, a, you know, a shiny bra when she's, a like, Jabba's prisoner. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, um, interesting. My brain always, my brain immediately defaulted to the teacups because sometimes I have the humor of a Fortnite addicted 12 year old. Right. You know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a ride that doesn't involve being like straddled by like, cause. Right. Cause that's you know, how you injure yourself. That's how you injure yourself. That's how you like catch something. Like, right. there's a that's lot of things thing. that could go wrong. Um, like, there's a bigger discussion about park behavior, and I'm like, beyond getting poisoned by certain things, I'm like, yeah. any situation that could theoretically give me hepatitis, Do I, I just try to avoid. infection? Do I want herpes? If I'm going to get herpes, like, I don't want to do it at Disney World. <laughs> not Well, one, no one would believe you. And right. two, yeah, not like this. <laughs> not like, not this. like this. Not this way. Um... I genuinely don't know the answer to that question, though. Like, I don't think I don't think I'm interested. I don't. No, thank you. I don't think I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> think about like because there's also the problem where the parks are simply too overcrowded now, and I'm like, think about how many people touch everything in that park. There's not an inch of that place other than maybe the tops of the trees just, that haven't been touched by human hands. As as someone filthy, filthy hands who is like very pro nudity and like. In, a, in many circumstances is happier sans clothing I must say there are certain things that I think would be more enjoyable fully clothed and I think Disney World is just one of those places I couldn't agree more yeah um, and you wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk well, about like sort of park behavior in general so there's uh, this YouTuber that I watch his name's Danny Gonzalez uh He's he's pretty popular. He's like a comedian commentary YouTuber where he just compiles things from the internet. And um, a while ago, this is like maybe over like maybe two years ago, he made a video about people giving birth in Disney World. Um, about this, this I phenomenon. Didn't know about that one. Yeah, there's a phenomenon about people attempting to give birth in the park. And there are actually numerous instances of people being removed from the park under suspicion that they are attempting to give birth uh, in the park. And first of all, what the fuck? But well, okay, here, here's what the fuck. Like, here's the reason. There is a rumor going around that being born in the park grants you a lifetime, like, membership or like lifetime tickets or something like that you can't like any place that much that like yeah like that's not the move like you need to you need to buy your baby savings bonds for their future not guarantee that they will have unlimited access to to disney world for the rest of their life okay oh war bonds so we can show that kaiser the one two yeah exactly um but that that's the that's the reason that people do it uh, is because there was, and Disney, I think, I'm pretty sure they publicly, like, debunked this with it, that they did give mm. a statement, because in, like, the last decade or so, uh, there were instances of this happening, like, frequently enough, truly one time is too many, um, but frequently enough that they felt the need to be like, you're not gonna get a damn thing if you give birth, like, if you're, You might like, go to jail. If you give birth here... Like, we're going to treat this like a medical emergency and have you transported to a hospital. Like, that should be an accident. That that should be... Right. You, you giving birth here should be a total accident. Um, 
like, and we're going to treat it like a medical emergency. And we're going to have you removed from the premises to, to send you to a facility to, to give birth under safe circumstances. Like, cause that's the last thing you need. Like, first of all, not only is that disgusting, but like, does Disney want you suing them for whatever defects happened to your baby because you decided to give birth on a, on a park bench? No. Like, yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. But, I mean, it really is, Sydney. It really is like, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because we've somehow regressed in our under, like our treatment of germs and like pestilence in the wake of COVID. But like people, I feel like people don't understand the reason why child mortality rates were so high in medieval times wasn't necessarily because people were dying younger, which was true, but like only a part of it. Well, it's yeah. because like midwifing was like the most important job because right. we didn't know how to keep a baby alive. Right, we didn't know exactly. how to give birth without someone in the equation dying. Dying, yeah. And you are basically putting, willfully putting yourself in the, like the fact that we have like the advances in medical technology that we can more often than not safely assure the life of the kid and the parent is nothing short of a medical like marvel. And to willfully ignore all of that and basically go back to medieval times where you're just in a dirty, dank place, just having well, it happen like, is fucking unhinged. Like, I just, I can't think of a, like, okay, so to steal your Jenny Nicholson question, like, if I had to give birth somewhere in, in Disney World, where where would be Probably the best the place to, rooms. yeah, I guess, no, I guess, I guess at one of the resorts, like, like at, at a hotel would be the best case scenario. Like, given that you're not doing this on purpose, like, and that you're just, you just so happen to be pregnant at the park. Nobody wants this, but like. Uh, like yes i guess in a hotel room would be the best place to like go into labor i guess um but, but then really, they would definitely just send you to the hospital but really right but really i would just want to be somewhere be where there's lots of other people that could help like yeah yeah a concierge yes where there are other professionals who are also interested in getting me to like a medical facility but like yeah if you had to give birth somewhere in the park like where where and why but, I mean, it's also, like, people wanting to do other things. Like, I've heard rumors that they're trying to stop people from proposing in the park, which I mm. think that's a little too far. I don't, I don't... Well, the big thing is, they mm -hmm. want to get people... People keep trying to get ordained... Like, they'll get a minister or someone who's ordained and, like, have them just do a quick... Because, like, we have multiple friends who are legally licensed to give at, like, officiate a wedding. Effectively, mm -hmm. they can legally bind a marriage document because right. they're, like... It's pandemic. I'm bored. That's common. This is a class. Yeah, this is surprisingly easy to get. I'm just going to do it. Um, and yeah, that's like a thing people keep doing. And it's like, and Disney's like put their foot down on that for a number of reasons. Right. Like, because what's wild is the birth thing is the Right. The birth thing is the craziest, but it's like people giving birth in the parks, people trying to die in the parks, people wanting their ashes spread oh, ashes. in the parks. That's which is the, the fucking thing. craziest one. I'm just like, one, I don't know how I feel about being cremated in general, but I certainly wouldn't want my what's left of my Remains. physical corporeal form to just be somewhere where people can touch it. Um, like people, people also like, don't want to be mean, like inhaling that. Like it's a fine powder. Yeah. Like th that's so gross. Yeah, there's also like there was all the behavior when um, Splash Mountain was closing, where people are like bottling the water, and it's like Ugh, that water that. has motor oil, electronics, Rust. animatronic yeah. parts. That's mm -hmm. dis. You actually will get horrifically ill if you yeah. drink any of that. Like, yeah. I mean, and I guess my question is, 
have people always been like this or are we only just noticing it now because everyone's terminally online? Um, a combination of the two. Like, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think people have always been like this, but I certainly think as time has gone on, like people become a lot more self-centric. People become a lot more, I think people are really detached from the idea that this is a place where people work and like live. They're, they're detached from anybody else in the world. Like that, that's what I've learned from working in the service industry. People are very detached from anybody else being in the same place that they are. They're, they're detached from other beings. They are in their own bubble and they think that like whatever they're doing, whatever they need, whatever, whatever that is happening directly to them, it's the only thing happening. There is nobody around. Like people have lost a sense of like courtesy for like, for like sharing common space. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It really is like, and I guess that just feels so alien to me because I'm overly aware of how much space I'm taking up at any given part point to a fault. But like, yeah, and I guess like, I don't know. Recently, because like, you know, there's been so many like so people on social media about like going to see Wish or like doing Disney stuff for the 100. And I'm just like, and it goes back to our original discussion about are we Disney adults? And I'm like, there is a level here that I simply cannot fathom. No. That my brain lacks, it's like your brain literally has a certain switch for certain things. Mm-hmm. And I just cannot find that switch in my brain that can flick on and be like, yes, I am going to watch my child be born on an mm-hmm. overheated Florida sidewalk. In Epcot, yeah. In Epcot's. Mm-hmm. I do, it is interesting. Like, I don't know. The parks interest me so much. And I really do want to get my one friend who worked there on at some point. Because I really do want to break down this area of Disney I don't know. Where it's simultaneously almost mythologized. Like I said, there's a reason why, like, athletes say I'm going to Disney World. There's a reason why getting a Christmas, like, finding out at Christmas you're going to Disney World is the most magical thing. There's a reason Mm -hmm. why people spend their holidays at Disney World. Wanting this, like, magical moment of their lives to be underlined with even more magic. But at the same time, it's also, like... Seemingly this unhinged place in the middle of a bog in Florida where, like, people are giving birth, spreading ashes everywhere. Yeah. Like, like the cast parties are out of hand. Um, like, what a weird... It truly is, like, what if we put a Renaissance fair inside a nuclear reactor and just cranked it as high as we possibly can? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um, Any... Any other thoughts on this, or shall we actually get into the episode? Let's get into the episode. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. I know you, like, started the episode with talking about your relationship with the Beatles, but did you have any, like, how did you first discover the Beatles? I always think that's such an, because, like, we weren't born in, like, like, it wasn't, like, a thing. Obviously, like, we are well, well past the Beatles being, like, an active part of people's lives. Because even mm-hmm. people in, like, the 70s and 80s, there was always, like, the rumblings of, like, well, the Beatles would get back together someday, obviously, right? Like, <laughs> you know, this isn't forever. Well, um, that's interesting. I think, like, inadvertently, I think this is sort of, like, a larger... The answer to that is, the answer to that is kind of a larger discussion about, like, music in general. Um, mm-hmm. I think every I like to think everybody goes through a Beatles phase in middle school. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> I, that's my story for this. Right. 
Um, I definitely had one of those of, like, discovering the, I mean, like, you're, like, the Beatles are sort of, like, I feel like the words, the Beatles, is its own shorthand for, Mm -hmm. like, just, like, I don't know, the, like, great music, like, you know, it's, like, it means everything and kind of nothing, like, those words, like, like, you have a, you're born with an awareness of the Beatles, and then you right. develop like a taste for the Beatles. Like that's really what it is over yes. time. Um, so I um, I started playing guitar when I was nine years old. And mm. um, I, I was, I'm kind of really, really lucky. I, um, that I was taught guitar by this eccentric man who, you know, taught music really in my area. Um, and but he taught me classical guitar. So I like my introduction to guitar the first couple years was like classical guitar. I was playing things like Bach and like um <laughs> like sp- like classical like Spanish guitar. Um but then he and truly God bless him I don't think this man is living anymore. Um he found it, you know, necessary to teach me about the uniquely african-american tradition of rock and roll which really that's mm-hmm. like the beatles have are nothing and and you can hear it in all of their music um rock, rock and roll starts with african-americans um even though largely i feel like it's it's a genre that's sort of been co-opted and kind of forcibly removed from from the african-american community um but it is it is a uniquely African-American genre of music. And I started playing guitar under that pretense of someone who thought, found it necessary to teach me all of that. To, and so my introduction to playing guitar was with like, you know, B.B. King and, and Muddy Waters and um, Chuck Berry and all of those like uh, Little Richard, like those are the those are the fathers of rock and roll. Like, fuck Elvis. I mean, don't even get me started. I hate Elvis, but... Um, but, um, so I had this really rich history of like the origins of, of rock and roll, um, and like this deep appreciation for it on that level. And so I think around middle school age is when I like, that was sort of the beginning of my interest in like the past. Like I'm, 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 I've said this before. I forget what other episode we talked about, about me, like always being interested in like vintage aesthetic like older thing like I've always sort of had the pop culture references of like generations before myself um I've I've always been a big fan of the monkeys and I think I've talked to you about this the monkeys were my first concert ever um and I did not know that you didn't know that yeah the monkeys were my first concert I used to have this massive poster of them I was a huge monkeys fan and I honestly think that's where my, like, taste for the Beatles actually began to be curated because, like, there is no really conversation about the monkeys without the Beatles because the controversy the controversy of the monkeys was like, oh, this is just, like, a fake Beatles. <laughs> and that was their biggest criticism is because it was they were cast as actors and for a TV show. And then they became recording artists. That, like, Which is cr- weird because we already had, America had, they already you had know? a Beatles. It was called the Beach Boys. Trying to match the Beatles kind of drove Brian Wilson to madness. Well, it's like, 
it well the, the criticism was was like oh like you know they're like this is a fake beetle like they're sort of copying the beetles because one of them's got a british accent and like and because you know they were answering an ad like they were they were a manufactured group for television and so the monkeys and the beetles get like sort of joined together hand in hand so so that is when i kind of started like actually paying attention to the beatles music Mm-hmm. And acquiring my own like taste for it, and then yeah, I mean every like I said, what what is it about that age about being in middle school that like, but I guess that's that's the first age I think where people um, start thinking about things critically, start developing a taste for anything, and then like mm-hmm. and then suddenly you feel like you're the first person to find something when really it's just new to you. Yes, especially old stuff. I think it also helps yeah. that it's like. Well, I'm cool because I like the old thing. Yeah. And it is that time where it's like, that. that's like the first era of someone's life where you can go to the movies and like be like, oh, I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, right. So you, yeah. Well, for me, it's very specific what happened. Um, so I was like really into the Guitar Hero games. I was really into like <laughs> the rhythm genre. That. I thought it was cool, uber interesting. Like I thought it was so unique. I'm like, this is innovation. This is the future of video gaming. And then um, Rock Band games became too expensive to make and Guitar Hero got bought by Activision and they're like, we need to release one every year and kind of killed that goose um, violently. Um, I also think anyway. like, not to, not to cut off to talk about video games, but it's like, do you think people don't want to play with things where you got to buy something? Like, Oh yeah. After, well, that became <laughs> the ultimate, like that was the ultimate like problem. It's like, especially because like once the console game? started transitioning, it's like, cool, you're going to buy another one? Like right. can't these be cross Another guitar? Like, that has four buttons on it? No. Yeah, well, that was a famous... Oh, I don't remember what skate... Oh, it was a Tony Hawk game, because Activision oh. went all in on the stupid peripherals. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing with, like, when the fucking Wii came out. It's like, the Xbox is like, we need con- we need our version of that. Connect. A big, stupid block on your TV. Right. Or and PlayStation shake your arms Move. around. Stupid, like, rave sticks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Activision made a Tony Hawk version of that, where it was like a mo- skateboard that you stand on. It's like, this is the stupidest... Oh, no. That Wii era was just, probably is why climate change is irreversible because so much plastic <laughs> shit that yeah. people didn't need. Right. Um, but anyway, so in 2009, to tie in with the release of the, well, I guess not to tie in, but like for some reason they centered a lot of like big Beatles events around 9909 because like it's a reference to the song number nine or revolution mm-hmm. number nine. And Rock Band, um, who were like the original creators of Guitar Hero were Harmonix and then they went on to make Rock Band. Um, they announced, they had like talked to the Beatles estate and they were going to make a game called Beatles Rock Band. So the idea is it's like basically a, you know, the rhythm music game, but centered around the career of the Beatles. You go in chronological mm, order. Nice. From, like their earliest days to when they just started, like they became a recording only band. Yeah. When they and started doing I, drugs. Yes. And I saw the first trailer for it and it had just such a cool art style, a, such a clean aesthetic. I remember the commercials it was, for it really clearly. Yes. They like had this aesthetic of like, I, I don't know how to describe it, but like lines, like lines following you yeah. through time that change color with the different eras and these like clouds. It was very pop arty mm-hmm. in a way that was aesthetically pleasing. And just seeing and the like commercials how were, like, like come together, right? Like they were. Yes. That yeah. was like the big live action one they did where everyone's crossing the road together. Yeah. Um, I remember so much about this fucking game. Yeah. I have it. Like I every now, like I got to undust my 360 to play it more mm. because they never, they never, you know, they, it was too expensive to like license all that stuff again. So it never came to another console. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But anyway, like, I was just like, these guys are so cool. Like, look at this shit. This is so cool. And then the fact that the game was, like, so tied in with, like, the history of the band. Like, you know, there's all these little documentaries in it. There's all these little notes. Like, the reward for playing well is you get behind-the-scenes photos and little, like, tidbits about the band. Nice. The, like, Paul McCartney's bass was, like, the coolest-looking thing because it looks like a violin, but it's a right, bass. That's tiny. what got me into yeah. Yeah, that and Scott Pilgrim back-to-back are what got me into bass guitar. Um, yeah, I never, I've always been to ask you, like, why the bass? That's such a, like, a very specific instrument that I've always wondered how anybody gets to play. It really is just because, like, Paul McCartney was, like, the coolest Beatle in my head. And then mm-hmm. Scott Pilgrim came out and made, like, music in general seem really cool. And mm-hmm. it just was like, oh, yeah, the bass. I was like, one, it seemed more simple, straightforward to me than guitar because I'm terrible with, like, chords like mm-hmm. my hands just do not want to like vibe with that mm-hmm. God, i can barely type sentences anymore so like getting into bass just felt like a more natural thing for me and i just like the sound better it just had this like echoing sound it's like because yeah. i liked drums and this was an extension of drums in terms yeah, of establishing the bass is considered a, rhythm. a rhythm instrument um yeah but anyway like i got so into the history uh no not really okay um but I ended up taking, I just, I ended up in a band somehow for a little bit. That was fun. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I ended up taking, or I ended up buying all these books about the Beatles. I ended up watching all this mm-hmm. stuff. I found the old cartoons they did that apparently the Beatles hated because John was like, we look like the Flintstones. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the you style of the era. I'm a guy. But yeah. But yeah, I got super into it. And that is one of the reasons why I was excited for this documentary, because it felt like an opportunity to kind of get back into the history aspect of it, kind of get into um, a lot of, like, the lore of the Beatles. Like, they have, they're they yeah. practically their own mythology. There's right. so many stories about that. <clears throat> and it's also, like, so I, we should probably start talking about the actual thing now, right? Well, well, to, to, I mean, to your point, yeah, this is, like, um, this is a... A history conversation so there's a lot more context to to discuss oh yeah i mean honestly one of the biggest contexts for me is the peter jackson of it all peter jackson as you all probably know was the director of lord of the rings and i do feel like when you have something that like monumental and successful it is kind of like well what do you do like you're Mm -hmm. never going to top that financially critically or anything so like you know his projects after that were like king kong which i actually think is kind of like the best King Kong movie. Uh, I love oh. it. It's it's polarizing. You either love it or you hate it. He made Lovely Bones, which was famously like derided and like people are, like just did not click with it. The mm-hmm. Hobbit, which I talk about the Frozen 2 documentary being like weirdly ad- an admission of guilt Apathetic. in terms of what yeah. went wrong. Mm-hmm. The, the one they released for The Hobbit, I genuinely can't believe they let the public see that <laughs> in terms of like realizing how screwed over... Peter Jackson was on that project of like trying to make it work and trying to like basically appease like seven different like powerful studio heads and like try to make something like to the level of Lord of the Rings, which The Hobbit was never going to be. And after kind of being in the woods for a while post Hobbit, he releases a documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. And the idea mm. is for the 100th anniversary of World War One, he and the BBC went through the Imperial War Museum's entire catalog of, like, footage. That was, like, the first era with, like, video cameras and stuff. So, like, it was the first time they were, like, filming... So they were, like, filming all these shots of, like, soldiers and troops and, like, all this stuff during about, like, the war effort. They restore all of this footage. They colorize it. They um, convert it to 3D. And 
impressively, they add sound. So like if someone's talking while it's being filmed, they add that mumbling. There's a scene where a general's giving orders. So they figured out where they were, then go back through telegram, like the history of the telegram records and figure out like what that could have possibly been and have someone read off those lines. The first shot, like the film starts with like the actual footage, like, cause like old footage, it's like, you know, it's grainy, obviously it's black and white. Like it's not lit very well because like, you know, they're out in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. and like frames are missing because like it was mm. all hand cranked. So every mm. now and then you would just have like a frame skip or something. So they had to figure out how to fix all of that. And when they do it, it's literally, it's as close as I think I'll ever see to the Wizard of Oz where it's in black and white and then you just step out into color. The frame mm -hmm. just goes widescreen and starts turning to color and the sound begins. And it's truly one of the most arresting things I've ever seen. Yeah. I really recommend anyone watch that documentary if you can find it. It's mm -hmm. very beautiful. And then his like follow-up to that documentary was Get Back. So Get Back for the Beatles was basically, it was originally pitched as like a, hey, let's, because like the White Album was famously a very fraught sort of production. Mm -hmm. Like they had gone, they were in like full studio mode. It was very much like- it's my favorite album. I go back and forth. I, I don't know if, I, I struggle to separate the tense history of it with the actual content. Um, and it's very long. It's like the longest album by a lot. And one of the reasons why is because they were kind of fighting the whole time. Like right. basically George, Paul and Ringo, or George, Paul and John all like basically were writing their own songs, demanding those get preferential treatment on the album. Ringo left the group for a while because he was so tired of just being dragged around between all three of them in different recording booths. And like they, it was their most experimental in terms of like doing stuff after the record. Like the days of just sitting down, everyone recording their part and mixing it were long gone. They were right. getting technical and weird. Get Back was kind of a vision of like, let's get back to just guys in a room recording a song, shall we? Mm-hmm. And then it kind of bloomed out of control, a little bit out of control, because it's like, well, let's make a, you, you guys are contractually obligated to make another film, so let's make it a documentary. Let's call it Get Back, The Beatles, Getting Back to Their Roots, and we'll have a concert at the end of it. And this documentary is kind of taking the footage from what would become the Let It Be documentary and sort of taking a lot of the footage that wasn't used and kind of telling the story of the end of the Beatles. Right. Which, speaking of which, like, let's talk a little bit about this footage in particular. Because mm -hmm. um, we talk a lot about, like, understanding the rules of something. And I think certainly it applies to even a documentary like this. Um, first of all, this is the kind of documentary where, like, no one really explains what's going on. It, this is this is the kind of documentary where you're a fly on the wall, which I think mm. has its own benefits. But Disney, or is it Disney Plus? I guess it's not Disney Plus. Um uh i think i guess it's a part of the film where they have this like disclaimer in the in the beginning that's mm. like hey uh, you're gonna hear words even though someone's mouth isn't moving cool are you cool with that okay great yeah that's what's gonna happen I, <laughs> like it, it it's interesting because they didn't have stuff like that for they shall not grow old but i guess because this was going to be more mainstream they had to be like hey we're taking like a little so, bit of artistic liberty liberty here right and, like, to be honest, some of it's a little uncanny valley. <laughs> some of right. it's, like, it's, because they, 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 when, you know, you can say artistic liberties, like, they really kind of constructed conversations that they don't have, like, video footage of. <laughs> right. And it is interesting, because, like, 
documentary is quote unquote the real film. Like the idea of like you're telling, showing what's happening in real life, but it's still a story. Every time you decide, like the minute something is shown through a camera lens, it is not 100% accurate to the human eye or the human ear. Mm -hmm. You like are committing to telling a story. You're taking all the footage you have, all the stuff you hear, and like telling a story. And this is like, and part of this is the fly on the wall element. These like little moments between the bandmates just kind of like jamming, trying to figure out how to, what they want this album to be, trying to come up with what songs they want, trying to figure out if they're actually going to do a concert or not. Mm. And like, but it's also a story about like these guys kind of reaching the end of their creative careers and that's where, like, Together. a lot of the flourishes yeah. come in. That's where a lot of the editorial choices come in. Right. I think I mentioned to you, one of the parts that affected me the most was there was just a random moment, like, so at the halfway through the first, near the end of the first episode, George kind of just gets fed up with, like, um, a lot of the tension with the group because it's like they haven't made any progress yet. You know, this one producer keeps really hammering home the idea that they have to do a concert in, is it Lebanon or Libya? I don't remember. But yeah, and he keeps being like, oh, you know, we'll be in this amphitheater and all of the Arabs. And I keep going, can you please not enunciate it like that? I, you just keep, he keeps saying it and he keeps having the emphasis. But anyway, like at some point, George just goes, yeah, I'm going to go. And they're like, huh? And it's like, I'm leaving the group. But then the next day they're waiting for John to show up and Paul just goes, and then there were two. And then mm-hmm. him and Ringo just kind of sit there for a minute. And you're like, right. Because this is the story, like... It is a story that's, like, it's a story about the Beatles now taking footage from where they mm-hmm. were then. Right. And by all accounts, like, like they talk about, like, you know, all of the members of the band are producers on this and, like, the wives of the deceased. And honestly, I'm shocked how, like, candid so much of this is. I'm shocked. I don't know. And I get, because, like, again, like, everyone wants to control the image of the Beatles. Everyone wants to control mm-hmm. the image of the band. Like, I'm thinking of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody a lot for some reason, which, like, famously had a lot of influence from the still-living members of the band. Obviously, it's a movie about Freddie Mercury that's kind of partially written by everyone else. Mm. And, like, kind of how ghoulish that movie is at some times about, like, being like, hey, you know, we were really keeping it together while this guy was off, like, gallivanting and doing all his stuff. And I'm like, ugh. So to have a movie, so to have a documentary that shows, like, the warts and, like, the tensions of the group is actually surprisingly refreshing. Right. Yeah, you know, as as I kind of mentioned, like, when we, you know, at the beginning of this episode, there are so many, like, when you mentioned about, like, them listing the names of, like, the police officers. And, and I was like, yeah, it's weird they listed the names of everybody. But, like, there were so many characters, there, there are so many characters in the lore of the Beatles. There right. are so many characters. And there are so many people who just wanted to touch this sort of golden idol for just a second to say that they did. Yeah. And um, let's actually, like, get into that. You know, like, in, in this first episode, like, honestly, th- the way that this opens, first of all, it's this is in three large parts. Um, how yes. long are they? Like, over an hour? Like, each one? It's About two and a half hours is, like, the minimum yeah. for any of them, I believe. Um, in in the first one, like, we, you know, we see them in this sort of open, like, studio space trying desperately to, like, work or do something. It's It's always sort of unclear what they're doing. And I think I mentioned this to you that, like, it is beyond me how this group of people got anything done. 
because truly so much of this footage is them being absolutely insufferably annoying and absolutely fucking around. Like, yes. <laughs> so like the one consistent, the one consistent of the Beatles is all four of them are cheeky little scamps. Yeah. And even as they get older and grow beards and have families and deal with mm-hmm. like actual adult problems, that energy never they went away. They get together and it's, it's sort of They just had the power to do whatever they wanted like, because now they're all multimillionaires. Yeah. But um like they highlight like they they show everybody's name um anytime they're like on the screen for the first time. So mm-hmm. it's like you've got like and it's something about it's really telling because it's like like each member sort of like brings a person with them in a way and it's so telling mm. like who they've brought because it's like first of all i was really caught off guard by like the degree to which like yoko is just there yoko oh no and right. and as a creative person i think i would tell her to fuck off a little bit like if i were in there i would be like you need to go away because she wasn't just present, like, in the room. She's, like, sitting there, like, with the band. Like, she's just, like, sitting in on the session. <laughs> like, like it's, like, you have to see this for yourself, like, those listening. But it, it was jarring to me that she was just, like, sitting there, like, like, in the same space as the band. Just, like, as if she were a member of the band. And, like, to me, I'm, like, why are you here? Like that, like there's a lot of rumors and stories, and like like I said, it's we it's largely lore about like the other members, especially Paul, being like more or less annoyed with her presence or her influence on John. But like, I was annoyed with her presence. I kind of didn't understand why the fuck she was around. But like, I guess I get it. I don't know. Anyway, that's John. Fucking George brings these monks. Who's that? <laughs> Why are there monks here, George? <laughs> What's that? I it is so interesting. Well, that part's interesting because like, well, one, it's so interesting because I feel like we came away with very different perspectives on Absolutely. Like, I'm presence. sure we did. Yeah, cuz like, I don't know. And I guess maybe it's different for me as a guy coming to terms with like sort of ingrained cultural sexism and like misogyny where it's And like, I'm a hard-ass girl boss who's like, "Excuse me, get the hell out of my damn meeting." <laughs> and that's why we're the ultimate team. Yeah. Um but yeah, the monk thing's interesting because George has such a candid little line where he's like, you know, so I was, he kind of describes being a little disillusioned with their time with like Krishna mm-hmm. and being like, you know, you went there to find yourself, but it's like, but he kept saying the you already had the answer and it's like, well, then how are we how we are? And I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I 100% understood what you just said, but it does yeah. strike me mm-hmm. uh, in terms of just like the struggle of finding yourself and like needing others too. I mean, I guess for me with the Yoko thing, it is like, I don't know. And I guess it, like it's interesting because it always is tough to bring like a significant other into a creative sphere or like even just like a social sphere. Because like, you know, we're lucky that for like our general group who's on like Discord and stuff that like, you know, Molly and Aaron are already engaged to Kevin and Tom before we all met. So there's like a level of understanding there and also that they match our- That's 100% really classic comedic stylings. We're playing- but, we're playing dumb video games. That's nothing. Yeah. It's a very different stakes, that's for sure. But, like, yeah, and I guess, like I said, a part of it's, like, realizing the ingrained misogyny of being, like, this, you know, this temptress, this snake. Who right, that. Who into the Beatles, who in reality is just an avant-garde, slightly odd Japanese woman. Yeah, she's just um, quirky. Yeah, and it's, like, I don't know. It is just, like, 
I think the thing that struck me is someone makes an innocuous comment about like, so mentions one of them's 27. And I guess it never really dawned on me to think about their ages in terms of all of this. When they were recording Get It, Let It Be, which this is called Get Back Now, but basically what happened is, um, basically what happened is after like all the tension here, they end up just sitting down and recording Abbey Road be like, no more frills, no more gimmicks, no concert, no nothing. Let's just record an album. And then sort of all the stuff that they made for Let It Be gets turned into one last um, uh, album called Get Back or Let, what they recorded for Get Back ends up becoming Let It Be. But like, yeah, Paul was like 27 during this. Like they were kids. You you really do realize like, fuck, their entire, mm. like the 10 years of the Beatles, they were fucking kids. They were like 17 when all this started. Right, like, yeah. And it really does like paint so much of this in such a different light when you're not looking at it from like a present day and seeing them as like mythological ageless creatures, but like literally like like kids from this like sort of like blue collar, like rundown part of England, sorry, Liverpoolians, don't don't get mad at me, um, who like by the grace of talent or stubbornness or just a perfect harmony of all four of them together ended up falling into basically becoming the faces of a generation mm-hmm. and then before they'd even grown up like like they're like sydney we're older than them mm-hmm. at this point like we are older than them than they were in this documentary some of them and it's just so striking to me of like god i've changed so much over the last year like i figured out so much more about myself and like what i want my direction to be and these guys were doing that while they were basically at the end of like a decade run like And I guess that's kind of why I'm, like, more soft about, like, the presence of their significant others here and, like, their own little, like, personal bubbles. Because it's like, yeah, they're all finding themselves now and they're kind of realizing that those things don't necessarily gel as well together anymore. Mm. Like, I do appreciate, and, like, Peter, apparently one of his fears with doing the documentary was, like, finding out they all really did fucking hate each other. And the reality is, like, no, they just grew up. Yeah. Like, again, some of my favorite stories, like... You know, Paul and George had a lot of tension, but it was largely creative tension. It was right. largely, like, George having a very specific image of his music and that not necessarily jiving right. with Paul. Apparently, George was very frustrated with Paul's, like, flourishy bass lines on something. Also, like, it's it's clear to me watching this, like, in terms of, like, musicianship, it's clear to me that the real, the true technician here was always George. Yeah. At I least mean, he's I, the one with, with, with the clearest like, formal training, at least. Like, he's the one who seems to really know music. Yes. He's, like, Paul and John together are this incredible tour de force, but at the same time, separately, they're not as strong. Mm -hmm. And, like, a lot of their skill is just raw charisma and raw, like, I don't know, sort of, like, just raw fury, whereas George is, like, a technician. He's tactical and, like, he just happens to be soft-spoken. But, like, one of my favorite Beatles stories is the fact that, like, for all the vitriol, like, years after the band broke up and everyone got their he said, he said, she said, he said, she said's out, like, Paul and John just hung out all the time in New York. Like, Paul would just come over and they'd just have jam sessions. They would Mm -hmm. hang, like, he would hang out with Yoko and his kids. Right. Like, there's a great story. They were watching SNL one night and the host made a joke about, like, I wonder if we could get the Beatles here tonight. And Paul was like, wouldn't it be funny if we just went down there right now? Like, mm-hmm. just got in a taxi and just did it. And mm-hmm. then they got cold feet. But, like, they were brothers. They loved each other. And, sure. like, yeah, oh, sometimes you grow up a little bit and realize, like, 
you got to step away from your brother for a little bit. And right, that's one exactly. thing I do appreciate with this. Yeah. That's kind of why I love that they just show how much these guys are kind of just little jackasses. Truly. Because, like, so much of the special moments in this are just them, like, dicking around, like, trying to come up with lyrics for stuff, just playing different songs, being like, right. let's play the oldies. Mm-hmm. And just, like, vibing. I just realized I didn't finish my thought earlier. Um, that, and you didn't answer my yeah. question as to why there were monks present in this rehearsal. Because uh, George committed Lives. the most to sort of, like, the spirituality element that they all got into. That's just stupid. But they, but at least they, like, what they were doing sitting, like, on the other side of the room, minding their damn business, that is what I would want for Yoko. But anyway, in hindsight, in hindsight, I, I have an appreciation for, for Yoko as being, like, an eyewitness to all this. And it, from a present-day perspective, she's sort of an invaluable source of, right. I mean, she is the only reason that we have Now and Then uh, as a song now. And mm. all of the other songs that they produced while George was still living. But yeah, um, her and Olivia Harrison are like keepers of this legacy now, right? And that's which, important. Which you appreciate, but like, like watching this, like I just felt very off put by her just like being present, but um, to the capacity that she was. But um, but I get it anyway. And and Paul kind of talked about it too. Like it, he was like, yeah, like I guess like you know they're in love. I don't hold it against them. But the fact that they're right. even like having to have that conversation. But- yeah, and I do think like I do think it's helpful that they just keep underlining how many people are here, how many people have opinions yeah. on what this should be, how many people are like talking about like at some point Ringo just keeps bringing up like we have a strict deadline because I got to make a movie. I think it adds to like the strong theming of this movie of just like this really is the end and they all kind of deep down know that even if they're not going to oh, say yeah. it out loud. And like that's why like sort of the build up to the concert is some of the most compelling stuff where they're all just like talking around like when they're all like debating if they should do this or how they should do this or if they even want to do this, mm-hmm. like especially because like a documentary I'd recommend to go with this one is on Hulu called Eight Days a Week, which is about their touring years and just how fucking toxic the end of that touring age got, especially after the bigger than Jesus comments where like someone threw firecrackers on a stage in Cincinnati, like right. the people in San Francisco refused to like put tarps over when it was raining. So there was a real serious chance they were going to get electrocuted. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, yeah, all of them basically get to this point where it's like, this might be the last chance we all have to do this together. And if we don't do it, then we're going to keep thinking about how we didn't do it. Yeah. And um, I was going to I was gonna segue to, well, not segue, I'm still trying to get through this point. Um, Billy Preston. Yes. Holy shit. That, that dawned on me like, that he's casually just present. I was like, oh my God, you're just like on this record. Like you're on all of these records, technically. Right. I don't even know if he's yes. really listed. I mean, I'm sure he is, but like, um, like as a, as a writer or, or like as, you know, like giving his accompaniment to it. But um, for those right. of you that don't know, Billy Preston is like a Motown legend. Um, so it yes. was jarring to see him just like present. It might yeah, as well have been Ray Charles. The Beatles since their Hamburg days like, when they were all in Germany together. Yeah, like it, it truly might as well have been like Ray Charles or something, some like other legend just like sitting right. there, just like casually there. <laughs> what well, is funny, basically the last two albums, if you consider Let It Be and Abbey Road 1, because they were kind of recorded semi-co-currently, mm-hmm. um, Eric Clapton was there for the majority of the White Album. Like he kind of came in later to help with mm. While My Guitar Gently Weeps and he just kind of hung around as like a morale booster and as like a peacemaker 
to, and it's like, yeah, that's what you, like, that's right. a part of it. Like, you know, having a new voice in the room kind of helps, like a new artistic voice. Yeah, which of them, like, what's the story with his wife and um, Layla? Oh, isn't that involved with the Beatles? <sighs> yes, but I I need to, I really wanted to find this old book I had that was like all Beatles stuff. I really wanted to find it so I could reference it a couple times. And then I ended up, I just couldn't find it anywhere. Mm. Like, and I guess, like, and as we talk about, like, all these different people, there is, like, an element, one of my favorite moments is they're, like, Paul and John kind of go and, quote, have a private conversation, and it's, like, well, oh, there was no cameras, part. but there was microphones. Right, they plant, they this, bugged them, which I was, like, okay. That I would almost like prefer not policy. to be hearing this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, like, if if we're gonna do this, we gotta do it, you know? Like, we have to see the end of this story. Like, if this is really the end of the story, then just show it words and all, but, like, John has a line where he just goes, I don't think the Beatles revolves around people. I think it might just be a fucking job. And again, it just struck me as like, the Beatles are so many different people, like so many different people who came in and out of their lives. Brian Epstein, no relation, who passed away. George Martin, who was there till the bitter end. Like their respective wives, their respective friends, like Billy Preston, Eric Clapton, like all these people who came in and out of their lives who like helped paint this legacy who helped mm-hmm. like basically create the mythology of the Beatles. Right. God, there's so many different angles we can take this. What like I'm realizing how much we Well, can let's talk. just get through what happens. So, um this concert, right? And mm. I think I felt the most confused about it. Again, this is a documentary that really like you're forced to kind of like figure it out what's happening on your own and they they um, transition it with these cut-ins of this, like, calendar graphic where they're, like, Xing off days on the calendar as we're, like, counting down to this mm. supposed event. But, like, I think I was confused up until it happened of, like, okay, when you say concert, do are people, like... I guess I felt confused because, like, truly until, like, two days before, they were not certain it was really going to happen. So I was like, wait, do people right. know about this concert? Like... Are you expecting a turnout? Like, what do you mean we don't, we're not sure if we're really going to do it? Like, it's an event, right? And then I don't, I don't think I fully had a full grasp on what they were talking about until it happened. Right. The original vision was for it to be, like, a publicized concert of sorts. Like, the idea that people would, at least some people would know in advance. Like, it would mm. be a pressed thing. And as the project shaped and as it, like, took longer and longer to get, like, songs out of it, the vision got smaller and smaller until it was like surprise concert on the roof that like, again, Paul just kept pushing. Like the concert has to be a part of it. That's what this was all building up to. This might be, you know, if this is about us getting back or whatever, when in reality, we all kind of know it's actually the end. We have to do one last show together. Like the story can't end with us not putting on a show. Right. Especially because they had sworn off touring, right? Like they didn't, they just didn't do it. Right. Paul was the only one who was at least, like, admit of, like, oh, this recording era is just temporary. We'll go touring again. Mm. When in reality, the other three were just done. They were completely done. Right. One of them was, I love, John was just like, yeah, during a lot of those concerts, I would just shout things. Like, I'd just make up lyrics because, like, whatever, no one can hear this. Like, this isn't music. (laughs) This is just just us being on a stage for people to gawk at us. A room of screaming, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, on that note, one of the moments that really just struck a chord with me, I'm trying to remember what song they play, 
but it was one of the songs they played when they went on tour in Japan. And I remember the stage because it was in rock band. It's like this huge, like they're super elevated high. It's like purple and orange and the words of the Beatles are behind them. And they're wearing like white suits. Um, and it just keeps cutting between them and the studio and syncing up what they're saying in studio with their voices back then. And it mm. truly is like, I'm like, again, if Peter Jackson never does a narrative film again and just does documentary, right. then he's one of the greatest documentaries to ever live because he knows how to tell stories with mm-hmm. documentary. Um, and just something about, again, I was just so shook. Like this documentary is such a good job at like nostalgia for stuff I never got to witness live. Yeah. That happened decades before even my, like my dad was a kid when this was happening. Right. Like, you know, my, like my, like my parents grew up with like twist and shout being a vinyl you could buy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. What were we going to say about the concert? Well, I wasn't going to say it about the concert, but like speaking of the style of this documentary um, and them introducing everybody, I mean, I love they. this includes like a consistent lower thirds of like everybody's name mm-hmm. as you know, when they're brought on screen for the first time, including during, which I really appreciate during these, during these like sessions that they're having where they're just sort of like playing whatever comes to mind, even songs that aren't theirs. Um, just like whatever, whatever old, old songs they, they feel like playing, they get, they tell you what the song is, even if right. they're referencing it for like one moment or it's just a part of it, or they're doing that thing where they're blending two songs together for fun. They like, they like keep, right. let you keep track. But speaking of which, Richard Starkly, like I totally forgot it. It <laughs> wouldn't have even occurred to me that he would like use his legal name professionally. <laughs> but he... Yeah, I I assume that's for royalties and stuff. You don't need to do that. You can, like, you can have your stage name as, like, your working name. Tell that to Spider-Man. Well, he's got JJJ after him. It's one of my favorite little bits from Spider-Man comics. It's literally, like, the second Spider-Man comic. He's doing, like, the staged work again to make money for Aunt May. And he goes to the bank and he's like, I'd like to cash this check. And the guy's just like, buddy, literally anyone could put on a mask and say they're Spider-Man. I can't. Right. I can't give you money for this. Um, but yeah, like, honestly, that's what it, like, what, this is one of the best, like, demonstrations of, like, the creative process. Because again, talking about, like, actual narrative biopics, talking about, like, movies about music, like, the problem they always run into is there's no, like, it's really hard to depict writing songs in, like, a realistic way. You always have to, like, dramatize it to the point it's silly. Again, mm-hmm. like it, like someone says a line and you go, what did you just say? Or like someone plays a melody and it just hovers in the air and everyone goes like, whoa. When in reality, <laughs> it's a lot of this. It's just people sitting around like hammering away at something or tinkering at something and knowing they're onto something mm-hmm. while they just try to figure it out together. Like, right. again, so much, like there's such a like beauty of like creation in this, of just like, these guys goofing around trying to make each other laugh while trying to figure out, like, all right, we're all good at this, right? If we all work on this hard enough, we'll come up with a song. Like, this, a song will get out of here, and then we'll just rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it until it's ready to go so we can perform it on a stage, ideally a rooftop, and it'll all make 100% sense. Right. Um, it's one of the things I appreciate. There's just so many minutes of this. It's kind of like it's kind of like what we described with Mr. Fox, where it's, like, something you can kind of come in and out for because it is the fly-on-the-wall element of, like, yeah. You know, it's like your, it's so, such an intimate documentary in terms of you really can like walk in and out and it's like, oh, they're still working on uh, right. 909. All right. Yeah. Trying to figure out the cadence for that. 
All right. Great. You know, I'm going to go make a sandwich. Let's see if they figure it out later. Right. It's also just like, it's like in in terms of, of just like vibes, I mean, something is quietly hilarious to me about like having a bunch of people sitting in like a small room, just like chain smoking at each other. <laughs> right. There's a constant I, presence of cigarettes to like a, a cartoonish degree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it would feel like parody if it wasn't just how people lived back then. <laughs> right. Exactly. Sometimes you do forget because like people are so afraid to even show a cigarette on film now. Mm-hmm. Like you get, like it bumps up your rating if your right. villain has a cigarette, even if it's your villain. Mm-hmm. Like we've gone full like haze code right. with like that, smoking like, on screen. Okay. They can extent. smoke, but they have to die in the script. <laughs> yeah. They have to get their head shot off. <laughs> right. And then the hero needs to look at the camera and go, I did this specifically because no he smoking. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah it is like it is to a cartoonish degree it really is funny like i don't know and again it's just like it's what it's simultaneously intimate and such a like time capsule of a moment just the way people talk the way their cadences are and Mm -hmm. just the fact that everyone is smoking (laughs) always that actually (laughs) it actually reminds me of did you ever end up watching the film yesterday i figured we can also use this talk as an excuse to talk about the beatles as a whole but it's Fine. There's a lot of controversy around it because the original Beatles films actually. Really, I have not finished watching Help yet, and I have not watched. um, I've never seen. So they're like four, not including the Let It Be documentary. Hard Day's Night, I've seen all of. It really is one of the best films ever made. Yeah. Um, Truly, it is like the most. It perfectly captures the Beatles. Help, I know, is a mess. I do need to finish it. There is one sequence in it that is one of my favorite things I've ever seen on film where they're singing You're Gonna Lose That Girl. That era of the Beatles in general is one of my favorites. Basically, like, help to Revolver. Like, mm-hmm. I just think they were so fucking in the pocket during all of that in terms mm. of, like, perfect balance between sort of, like, moodier stuff and, like, experimental stuff in the pop. Um, they're playing You're Gonna Lose That Girl, and it's a smoke-filled room. Again, they're smoking. Just mm-hmm. smoke everywhere. And it's like dimly lit and it's just this so intimate and so cool. But then to kind of capture the tonal problems that film has, they're like, they're fake recording guys like, hold on, I'm hearing something on the mic. And it sounds like a saw. And you realize this cult that once Ringo's blood, it has sawed perfect circle under his drum kit. And he just like falls Looney out. Tunes <laughs> yes, actual, okay. like that movie is like, like 10% like kind of fun, like 10% fun little bits with the Beatles where they're clearly high out of their fucking mm-hmm. minds. Uh, apparently they were a mess on that set because they couldn't stop smoking pot. Um, like 10% like gorgeous music video stuff. And then the rest is Looney Tunes nonsense centered around Ringo because he had the most screen presence and was like the most naturalistic actor. Right. Um, and then Magical Mystery Tour was like a pseudo narrative documentary mess of a thing, but that album kind of right. rules. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but yesterday's fine. It's interesting because we talk about like this kind of a time capsule of an era. Like the problem with the like the original script for yesterday was very much about like you know the Beatles were a once in a lifetime lightning bolt. Like if you just tried to do their music now, it wouldn't have the same oh yeah rapport. Whereas the movie is more about the romance between the main character and this girl. It's more of a traditional, like, musical movie that just happens to be about a high-concept idea. So anyway, there is an element in the movie where, like, he performs on, like, a small stage. And one guy just stays afterwards, like, clearly shell-shocked by what he heard. And I'm like, oh, God, are they going to—is this going to be, like, him getting—is he going to get shot at the end? Um, And it turns out there are, like, three other people in the world who know the Beatles still exist. 
like they who still like remember the Beatles existing. If you're not familiar with Yesterday Guys, the idea is a guy wakes up in a reality where the Beatles never existed, so he like steals all their songs. Yeah, so he's like, well, I could write their songs and make money. But like, this is more just a ghoulish joke on my end. But anyway, so like they all meet him finally, and they're like, you remember? We all remember. And they give him an address and they're like, I think this will help you figure things out. And he opens the door and it's someone who looks exactly like John Lennon. And the idea is because he never got famous, he never died. And I'm like, on one hand, this is kind of a beautiful little sequence. But on the other hand, it is a little ghoulish. And then on the other other hand, is the implication here that George Harrison still passed away because he smoked? Right. (laughs) Yeah, there was no saving that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, which I'm like, God, that's fucking... See, don't open that can of worms, movie. <laughs> right, exactly. I was going to say about yesterday, even though I haven't seen it, like, it's weird to me to think that people would react that way to hearing the Beatles. Like, in, in a world where there is no Beatles, it's weird to think that people would react like that to mm-hmm. hearing good music for the first time. Like, because they present it as if they're, like witnessing like a baby take its first steps right like like it's miraculous when in hindsight i'm like nobody ever reacted like it would it would just be more pop music and people would be like yeah that's a groovy song dude and that'd be it like the only (laughs) time yeah the only two times it makes sense in the context of the movie are when they get him a new guitar because like he he wakes he wakes up after getting in like a bike accident Mm -hmm. and his guitar got smashed so they give him a new one and he decides to play yesterday for as, like, the inaugural song. Right. And everyone gets, like, so shell-shocked by it because they're like, that's the most beautiful thing you've ever written. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. Um, and then he does something on, like, live air. And I'm like, see, those two make sense because they're, like, moody and intimate. Yeah. Like, the general Beatles patina wouldn't... Yeah. And I guess that's kind of like the... Yeah, no, if, if he had started kinda, like, with, I want to hold your hand, they'd be like, okay. Yeah. This, yeah, this rules. Cool. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that's a good... You wrote a good yeah, song nice. there, Petey. I like it. <laughs> yeah, great job. Not like you are the most important, you are the defining faces of post-war Europe and by extension, right. the world. I guess it's just that um, he didn't start with Octopus's Garden because then they would have had him committed. Yeah, they would have been like, jail. fucking weird. Are you like, <laughs> are to you jail. trying to be like the next Wiggles? Is that your right, vibe? Exactly. Man? Even though like, Octopus's Garden figure- is probably one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it is a bop. Ringo gets underrated. They, George and Ringo really get underrated as talents, and I oh, feel bad yes. for that because they are talented. Like, I think my favorite Beatle is George, honestly. I go back and forth between. Do you want to get those? While we're kind of just yes. putzing and mummering here, do you want to get the, all right, favorite Beatle, go. George, as an adult, as a, as a tweeny bopper, it was, would have been Ringo. Right. Tweeny bopper Paul, like sort of moody George. Um, yeah. Favorite album. Um, well, I've, I've said that the White Album is my favorite, again, Tweeny Bopper, Rubber Soul. Yes. As an <gasps> adult. We have the same one? Oh, sweet Jesus. Okay, that, why am I not surprised? But yes, because I, I like the quintessential 60s sound, man. Yes. You know? So Rubber Soul, but, like, in, as a mature, refined adult, um, obviously it's, um, the White Album, because I have taste now. No, I'm kidding. Guys, I sincerely did not know that was her favorite. I That was a sincere <laughs> gasp of excitement that we have the same fucking favorite Beatles album. Well, do you, um, do you like, is it, is it still your favorite Beatles album? Oh, absolutely. Okay, it's valid, yeah. Yes. Like, like I said, I think 
it alternates between like rubber soles number one and then i'm like I go either Revolver or Help. I think I've Just Seen a Face mm. might quietly be my favorite Beatles song. And the fact that that goes straight into Yesterday is such beautiful lyricism. I can't even, like, I can't even. Mm. Um, I used to love, love, love Sgt. Pepper's, but I do wish they committed to the bit a little more on that one. Um, oh, as your, like, and favorite, is, favorite song? Yeah. Or, like, with Sgt. Pepper's, I kind of wish the whole album kept the gimmick going more. And it wasn't just mm. motifs. Right. Um but, like, overall, pound for pound, for me, it's Rubber Soul. I think it is just their most beautiful yeah. stuff. It's their best... It's the combination of the best moody and poppy stuff. Yes. Um, like, I'm Looking Through You is probably my favorite solo McCarthy song. If I had to really put my... If I had to commit to one, which I know is saying a lot, but, like... It's hard Again, to. this is all personal taste. I, I like... Like, if I had to pick a... It's it's so hard to pick a favorite song. But I love While My Guitar Gently Weeps. But I love Oh Blah Dee Oh Blah Da. Yeah, that's true. I mean... But I really love all like, their dance hits. Like, I love the early dance I'm, stuff. I love She Loves You and Drive My Car. And right. I love that old stuff. Like, yeah. And it's like, you see why they took over the world in a world where this yeah. wasn't existing? Where this wasn't just During acting Vietnam. that was there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like... Because, again, like, they weren't wholly unprecedented. They were unprecedented in terms of talent, not necessarily music, musicalism. But at the same time, it's right. like, yeah, imagine living in a world where you didn't know I Feel Fine exist, and then I Feel Fine just exist. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, this right. rules. Yeah. I'm like, I get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Although, like, Abbey Road, I, Abbey Road for me is much like Spirited Way, where I'm like, it's not my favorite of this master artist's work, but I kind of have to, like, give the floor up in terms of its, like, seminalness. I mean, The appeal again, is the album cult- art. That's it. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it's like the entire back half of that album it, as this That's one, true. like, big flowing thing. That's going from Carry the Weight, which is one of the few that gets credited with all of them as lead vocals, going into the end, which is just all four of them just having a little, like, basically like a curtain call. I'm like... God, again, talk about calling your fucking shot and Mm -hmm. just hitting it out of the park. Um, The other Beatles movie that they didn't make that I wanted to bring up on this episode, because I'm trying to find it. It's very hard to find because it never went to streaming and, like, you can't buy it digitally, is I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is Bobby's Mm. one of Bobby Z's earliest. The gimmick is it's kind of like a big ensemble, all these tweens, beatnik tweens, kind of, like, trying to get to the Ed Sullivan Theater for the show. Um, and it's about, like, how it affects their lives and, like, why they're interested or disinterested in the Beatles. And it's, like, the first time he did a lot of, like, Forrest Gump gimmicks of, like, mm-hmm. showing a celebrity without having them there. Mm-hmm. So, like, they'll have stunt doubles like for the Beatles. Like he's, like... <laughs> yes. He's, but like, the, do the like... ugliest thing you've ever seen. Well, no, see, they avoid that because they never okay. show the Beatles' actual faces. Okay. The idea is, like, the actor, like, they'll strategically have, like, a TV projector mm-hmm. showing the actual performance while you see the Beatles' bodies kind of, like, mimicking the notes. Mm. Um, that is probably, and I, God, again, in terms of calling your fucking shots, the Ed Sullivan Theater performance, where the stage is literally just a bunch of arrows pointing, like, these guys. This one, this it's one. these guys. It's, They're here. Yeah, in case you're confused, it's these particular In case you're confused guys. about the moment right now. It's happening you gotta, right here. Like, yeah. Yes. The, like, history in the making right here, right now. Um, do you want to talk about the Rooftop concert itself? Um, when, in terms yes. of, like, the narrative stuff, I really appreciate every time they underline, like, this is the recording they used on the album, Let It yeah, Be. Yeah, they did. Which just, like, if you need a testament to how fucking good they are, that they right. go out and perform in, like, not perfect conditions, kind of, like, flusters, kind cold. of on the run. They're all wearing fur it coats. Looks, 
I actually have a funny story about that in relation to Beatles rock band, believe it or not. Mm. So, like, obviously, like, the you know, all the members of the band and the wives sort of contributed and, like, gave their opinions. They're like, hey, here's what we're thinking for this sequence. And they're like, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. And apparently Yoko, for the most part, was just kind of in agreeance. Like, she didn't really have too many, like, big notes to give. Mm-hmm. And as they're approaching the, um, like, E3 presentation, where they're really going to show off the game for the first time, she goes, hey, you know, the rooftop concert was really windy. I feel like it should be windy. And they're like, oh, right, this cool, time. we have to program wind physics. Uh, very difficult. You know, you don't necessarily have a built-in wind physics uh, mm-hmm. system for your musical rhythm game, but okay. Right. We'll, uh, we'll see what we can do on that. Mm. And then it was a scramble to, like, make it so their hair would, like, fly would around. Blow. Interesting. Yeah. But, like, yeah, it... Again, we talk about, like, rock and roll music beca- being considered, like, the devil's work, this, like, rebellious thing. And, like... The devil's jazz. Yeah, and, like, you know, at this point, the internet has, like, completely desensitized us to everything, and, uh, you know, we're just, like, you know, You'd our brains like, oh, are devil's just jazz sounds nice. Yeah. yeah, or you're just, like, really? This is what... And, again, it's, like, it's the one moment you become a boomer is when you're experiencing, like, Beatlemania stuff, where you're, yeah. like... And this documentary does such a good job of that because, like, when you're watching these guys literally stopping traffic, literally the streets are just filling, trying to figure out what's going on. They can't even see the Beatles, and People they still want to know what's going on. Climbing on any roof they can get a hold yeah. of, like jumping across, it's dangerous, actually. Yes, and the police are getting progressively and progressively it more angry. You're just Danny DeVito sitting there, going like, "Oh my god, I get it." <laughs> like for just. And I think that of all the things, that's probably the most magical thing about this documentary. You get a 40-minute uninterrupted just performance from the Beatles, and you just sit there, and it sells you on Beatlemania. It sells you on, like, this is why this mattered. This is Mm. why this was, like, the most incredible thing that ever happened. I'm surprised the crowds weren't larger for that event. Right. But people were very, seemed very taken off guard. Like, even they, because they did, they conducted little interviews on the street of, like, Mm -hmm hey, what do you think about that? And people are like, huh. Like, I don't think it really registered to them what they were seeing. (laughs) Right. They're like, if it sounds like like Paul McCartney, and I guess it is. And they're like, huh, that's the Beatles. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it is so funny. It really does feel like people are, like, trying to remember again. Like, Like, it's been so long since the Beatles performed live. Yeah. Yeah. Remember this? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, again, that's so much of the energy of this documentary. Like, all these people growing up and, like, having one last ride, one last dance. Mm-hmm. And kind of, like, remembering what it was to be a band again and, by extension, what the band meant to everyone else. Right, yeah. I mean, oh, God, I do get a little bit of goosebumps from, like, the minute they're done playing. And George, uh, John says the line, and I hope we pass the audition. They just have the text... This was the last time the Beatles performed together live. Right, yeah. And you're just like, you just see the end of it. There it is, yeah. It's, it's, I think what's sort of spooky about that is like, maybe somewhere within them, they knew that. But like, no, you, you really don't realize that it's the last time you're going to see somebody or, or be experiencing something. Right. And I mean... In that argument that I mentioned where Paul and John were talking and John is like, maybe it's just a fucking job. Paul says a line and we'll probably when we're all very old, we'll all agree with each other and sing together again. And like, it's hard to believe that didn't happen. And that's kind of why. Technically it did. 
Yeah, well, that's why the song is so fucking special, because it's like, well, we can't get them back, but at least we can kind of have them but back. But there was an attempt. Like, yeah. Like, you know, there was a whole decade before John passed away where people just kept being like, well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, you know, they made an attempt. Nothing's forever. They, I think they were genuinely surprised by the passing of George. That was, the like, that was it, really. Yeah. Once two of them are gone, it's just like, yeah, that's... That's too it. many, yeah. I mean, it was already hard enough because, unfortunately, John was wrong. It wasn't a fucking job. It was a sort of... Yeah. You know, sort of a mythic group of four people who changed the world, redefined pop but that music, that speaks to and kind his mental place at that time. You know, right? Well, see again. That's the thing. Like these guys are twenty-seven. They're like, you know, we're older. We're still older than them now. They're still in a lot of ways sure. kids. Yeah, in hindsight, like, they I think grown up completely yet. I think John was in the healthiest mindset to be detaching from it in that way, at the time. Right. I mean, honestly, I think that's one of the nice things. Like, that's kind of why I like the presence of Yoko, because it underlines, like, for John, like, you know, he's seeing a life after this, whereas, mm. like, Paul is not quite there yet. Right. And, like, George has kind of been detached for a while, and Ringo, sure. like, just cares about his friends, and he's here. Truly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, which, again, it's funny that he was the first one to ever officially leave the group. Right. That's kind of surprising. But on the way, not... Um, I wanted to talk briefly about, like, well, well, we can circle back to now and then, I guess. But, like, what's your opinion on some of their solo music? Do you have preferences for their, um, their individual projects that they would do after? That has always been kind of one of my big must-do projects. Mm. Someday, like, because I was like, I don't want to just listen to it all scattered to the wind. I want to sit down and, like, really engage with each member of the band and figure out, like, what post-Beatles life was like for them. The only mm-hmm. one I, obviously, like, the only one I really engaged with is Paul McCartney. That was my first concert I ever went to, was going to see was Paul when he was at uh, Wells Fargo. He, was it the Wings or was it just Paul? Just Paul. I oh. I didn't get into them soon enough for the Wings. Yes. I love These the more wings. recent eras of Paul where he does a little Beatles, a little Wings, and just oh. kind of jams. Yeah. I am a pretty big, like, Wings fan. I really love the Wings music. Yeah. Right. Like, I love Band on the Run. I love, I love that sound yeah i just appreciate that they don't try to like at some point there was a realization i can't just do the beatles stuff again it has Mm -hmm. to be its own kind of music and now obviously he does beatles songs because it's like well i'm paul mccartney people want to hear me do my songs right yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) like this is the time where i just play the hits right Mm -hmm. um but yeah what about you do you like have you engaged with a lot of their solo stuff a lot more um What's going to call it? Well, it's so funny that you mentioned Christmas because I feel like I, I solely associate John and Yoko with Christmas, like not even the full Beatles, just the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because with, it's Christmas. Right, that really quintessential, beautiful song. Um, I have I have beef with Imagine. Um, I love George Harrison. Well, it's been ruined by culture. It's been ruined. It's my least favorite song ever. And it's not because I think it's an, it's not a beautiful piece of music, but I think it's like, it's just like, I don't know, too many, like, please cancel me for this. Too many white people like something. It's a big red flag. Like, and no, that you're is not wrong. Song. I mean, I think that's why people take time to engage with the Beatles. 
Like, right. I do think everyone everyone has a Beatles era, but they also have eras where they're like, the Beatles weren't that good. The Beatles weren't that good. And then, like, as you mature and, like, engage with them as artists and humans and, like, a cultural phenomenon, you come around to, yeah. like, this really did matter. This really was one of the biggest things to ever happen to our stupid little planet. Right. But, like, with, imagine, like, now it is just, like, how white people self-soothe when somebody dies at the hands of the police. And it's how they, yes. like, check the box of, like, well, I did my job. Yes. I listened I, to John Lennon's song. Check. That's my, yeah. I did my public, I mean, my civic duty. I mean, I guess, I mean, it's, look, it's a, par- it's a part of being one of the most culturally important things to ever happen is at some point you lose control of what you can say. And, like, I do think the documentary talks about that. Again, it's so much of the first episode of this documentary is people yelling at these guys, telling them what they have to do, what they're obligated mm. to do as the Beatles, these knights of music and like these yeah. crusaders for the era. And like by the end of it, it's just like, by the end of it, it's just all four of them together being like, let's just do this thing, you know, for us. Mm-hmm. This is about us right now. This might be the last time we get to do this. Maybe someday we'll all get back together and do it again. But we can't guarantee when that day will be. So for mm. now, let's do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of tempted to just listen to mm-hmm. now and then right now. I mean, well, I think it would make a good notes from the host if you, you know. Oh, yeah, that's to true. talk about it later. Um, I've been listening to it a lot um, since it came out. I'm really attached to it. But um, I mean, but it's like maybe it's, a part of me. It's, I think it's I'm a also song. just afraid of it. You should be, because it's it's a because it's a song the end. about then there's grief. No more. It it is truly a song about grieving. It is truly a song about loss, and that's what like it is a bigger message, not just about John Lennon, but like it, it has a absolutely universal quality to it. It's 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 extremely cathartic. Yeah, I guess, but then it really is like the story's over then, because like, do you see you it know, that again, way? That's a part. I see it as like the story living on. Like, oh my god! Like, like they found another one. They were able to pull another one out. Like that to me is like, oh, they like it persisted. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's how. Like, I guess that's the two sides of like grief and moving on and accepting something ends. You know, it's like yeah. Half the time, you're just gonna be afraid to confront it because once you close the book, you can't reopen it. But the other is like, you know, that book will still always be there. Mm-hmm. <sighs> what else can we is there any other stuff you want to talk about on this I think we covered everything yeah oof man hold on I need to take a second but I hope you all enjoyed this episode because like the Beatles do mean a lot to me even if I don't talk about it as much me too like they've been a constant present in my life since you know Beatles rock band they kind of shaped a lot of how I view art and music so oh, like yeah Having kind of an excuse to just talk about them, but also, like, through the filter of this truly, I'm, I, like, for my final thought for this episode is, is this the most important thing on Disney Plus? Like, outside of, like, the fact that all of Disney animations, like, important cultural works are there, like, independent of that, like, is this one of the most important things that's on here in terms of, like, historical preservation, in terms of, like, capturing a moment in terms of, like, giving us an insight into one of the most historically important groups in, like, culture. You'll have to answer that for me. I don't know. Do you I feel that way? I think it is. Because mm. it's, like, 
imagine a world where we didn't have something like this. Imagine a world imagine where, like... Imagine there's no Beatles. Sorry, Barkley. I had to. Um, go on. <laughs> How do they not make that joke in yesterday? It's right there. Know. It's literally, like, literally, it's like open net, bounce pass, just take it and go to the hoop. Like, seriously, we're, le- we're holding your hand through this. But, yeah, it's just like... At the end of the day, like, we talk about, like, the mythology of all this, all the lore behind the Beatles. To have, like, a, almost a first-hand accounting of the actual, like, what actually happened of, like, what it was actually like is worth its weight in gold. Right. Again, at some point, there's going to be a finite amount of Beatles stuff. I hate to say, I know we don't like saying this, but at some point, you and me are going to live in a world where Beatles are no longer there. So to have this I want to die is, first. <laughs> Take me out. Oh, my climate change is going. Take me out no, first. No, I need not you. Paul I can't McCartney. run this show not by myself. Sydney, I cannot me. run this show by myself. Take no, you're not me. making me find a new host. <laughs> no, no. Wait, no. No. No, please. Um, eh, I don't know. Maybe I'll fight less hard, but we'll see. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, so to have these records is important beyond words. Right. Yeah. And until we get back to where we once belonged, I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. Have a magical day. Thanks for listening. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash Disney Desk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you. Yeah, it's like Voldemort. Sometimes I wish I could throw something at you. I know. You need that sometimes. Not enough, like, you need, like, a to just be, like, body checked sometimes. Yeah, just fucking hip with, check. With like, love. Hockey. Just fuck! <laughs> just against the wall. Just, <laughs> oh, God, I wish I could. I wish I was a good enough skater to do hockey. It just seems like the dumbest, funnest sport. Right? And it seems hard. Like, hard. Like, you have not have two skills. Right. You gotta know how to yeah. play the game, but well, you have to know how to skate. <laughs> here's the thing. I would argue that playoff hockey might be the best, or at least it's the best relative to, like, regular season to postseason. Because, mm. like, regular season basketball can be fun, but more often than not, it'll be like, look, there's a game, like, 73. Our playoff seating's basically <gasps> decided. Let's just kind of shoot around. There are Let's too many games around. in basketball. That's crazy. Yeah. It's just so dumb. They keep trying to change the rules to get players to take the regular season more seriously. And it's like, shorten the season, you deranged fucks. Like, right. turn your terminal capitalist brains off for 15 seconds and realize That's this is absolutely long. a less is more. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, there are, like, slogs of football games. But, like, there's enough talent in the NFL now that, like, you know, you're going to get at least three or four really good regular season games a week. Mm-hmm. Where it's, like, hockey and, like, playoff baseball. Like, baseball's just very casual to start. And then, like, the playoffs are exciting. But, like... Regular season hockey can be such a fucking slog because it really is, like, the bad teams can barely, like, skate. They can barely, like, coordinate everything. Mm. So when you get just, like, the best of the best, like, the final, like, four teams, you know, more often not really are, like, the best teams. There's something magical about it. It just gets so intense. It has, like, the intensity of soccer playoff, like, important soccer games, but condensed, and everyone also has to skate. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Someday we'll do a sports podcast. Yeah. Um, shall I intro, intro us in for this <clears throat> one? Um, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm.